Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Oakey. This week's episode features my conversation with Megan McCabe of Gonzaga University. In this episode, we talk about her path to studying theology, the idea of cultures of sin and how it relates to social sin and structures of sin, and the centrality of tradition in Catholic theology. With that, we talk about her recent interview in America Magazine and her past piece on Up for America on pornography and structural sin. Links to both of those are in the show notes. We'll be back in April with our next episode. In the meantime, if you'd like to support the podcast and make these interviews possible, head over to patreon.com slash dtpodcast. And thanks, as always, for listening. Today for the Daily Theology Podcast, I'm speaking with Megan McCabe of Gonzaga University. Megan, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I like to begin by asking a biographical question, and I'm curious how it is that you came to be interested in theology and how theology came to be uh, your field of choice. Yeah, so my short, short, pious answer is that it's the work <laughs> of the Spirit. Okay. <laughs> and, and to be honest, like, that sounds kind of flip, but I think for me it feels really honest because it feels in a lot of ways like I was set on the path that just started happening to me. Hmm. And that is that I actually, I, I spent almost my whole life going to Catholic school, even, you know, in elementary school was Catholic school, and I went to an all-girls Catholic high school okay. um, that was actually 7 through 12, and I started there in eighth grade when we moved to the Boston area. And when I hit my, I would say, sophomore year of high school, I was really struck by the things that I was learning in my religion classes. And it felt like, I mean, now I would think I would recognize it as apologetics, but it felt like kind of my first real inquiry into thinking about some kind of intellectual foundation or intellectual exploration of faith that I also, I guess, was kind of into. But it's not like I grew up, I didn't grow up in a like, super Catholic household. Like we mm-hmm. always went to church and obviously went to Catholic school, but it, it wasn't, I don't feel like we were praying at home all the time or anything. It kind of felt like just, I don't know, I guess normal, but everybody thinks what they have is normal. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. Like I, I it, it felt, it started to feel like the learning that I was doing in high school even was an expression of a spirituality, or at least mm-hmm. that's how I would describe it now. And when I was looking at time to go to college, I ended up getting into one of the four Catholic universities that I applied to. Only one of them accepted me. And I had never really thought that much about going there. And this was Fordham. And I kind of just applied. I don't know why I applied. It kind of just was like a place I applied to. (laughs) Um, And I got in on the same day that I also got rejected from the places I really wanted to go. And so I was like crying. And my mom was like, you can go to Fordham. And I was like, Fordham's stupid. <laughs> but, you know, what ended up happening is I went, you know, like I went, I said, I said, I really enjoyed my religion theology classes. And I think I want to be able to take theology in college. Okay. And so I went and it wasn't ever like a discernment process. Like it was just kind of like, I think this is the place that I'm going to go. Hmm. And to be honest, it like really was quite fortuitous. I mean, we know now that like Fordham is a really strong theology department. Mm-hmm. And so I showed up at orientation and we were going around the circle saying what we were going to major in and I just said I'm going to major in theology wow and I hadn't discerned it I hadn't really thought about it but I just happened to fall into a really phenomenal department where I was really one of at least on my campus in the Bronx I was one of three theology majors my year Hmm. so I just got really phenomenal like one-on-one time with amazing faculty 
And the first classes I took were like medieval theology, which like blew my mind and I was so interested in. And I was like, I'm going to go get a PhD in medieval studies or medieval theology. And then I took a class with Janine Hal Fletcher and she introduced me to feminist theology and liberation theology. And at first I was having none of it. I was like, no, Athanasius Mm. says something different. But I, I don't know, it, it ended up being profoundly formative to me. And she in, in particular, not she in particular, but everybody really was so wonderful to me and gave me so much time and mentored me in such phenomenal ways. But she spent once a week my senior year, the whole academic year, meeting with me for an wow. entire hour to talk about my senior thesis. And that really just changed my life, you know? Like, I, I wrote a senior thesis on kind of like the role of Mariology in Mulius Dignitatum, informed by some, like, feminist Mariologies. Hmm. And she helped me think about applying to graduate school. And it just seemed like the thing that I was going to do next. Like, it just was like, and now I will go to graduate school in theology. Mm -hmm. And then I will try it. And then I will get a PhD. And I never really thought about what happens if that doesn't work. (laughs) It just happened. You know, like, it just, my mom at some point said, well, what are you going to do if you don't get it? And I said, that's, we'll talk about that later, you know. (laughs) And I went to Notre Dame. And I... I feel like I got a really strong foundation in the tradition at Notre Dame. <laughs> um, and I learned a lot. I started in systematics, actually, is what I was initially focusing on. And then I took a class on Christian ethics and human rights, and I said, I'm switching to ethics. This is the, these are the questions that really drive me, kind of like very concrete application to human flourishing. That's, that's what I wanted to be thinking about and talking about. And then I applied to PhD programs and I got into BC. Like it's like every step along the way just feels like a falling into place, which yeah. is profoundly privileged, I know. But it 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 does just to me like really feel like a calling out of myself in some way. Yeah. That's really wonderful. Uh it definitely I mean I'm I'm glad it works so well for you. <laughs> kind of amazing to you. Yeah, but that's yeah. not like everybody's No, experience. no. No, like it's I mean in like and one of the things that's sort of consistently fascinated me in talking to people about how they came to do theology is, you know, the, I mean, just the range of paths that lead to people mm-hmm. doing it. And I mean, I, I think one of the things that strikes me in what you said so far is that on, on one hand, it wasn't, you said it like, it wasn't really a process of discernment per se, because it's not, it didn't, it doesn't sound like you were, you know, sort of like picking between, you know, a, a range of choices and things like that. It just sort of, it felt very straightforward to you if, if I'm hearing you right. But but yeah, then no, that's right. I, I'm also like I one of the things I'm curious about and, and in a way this is kind of timely because I, I you know you had this interview with uh, America magazine the other day but this relationship of the tradition and you noted the sort of initial maybe cognitive dissonance in you know when you were first studying feminist theology and liberation theology and it I mean it, it might I mean it might be like a, a thought I had is it might be that it's the the discernment process was almost sort of figuring out what you were doing within the tradition or with the tradition yeah more than you know discerning like this field or this profession is the the way to go yeah i think that sounds that sounds right because that you know that takes time and wrestling which continues you know and i guess this is not so much about discernment but i'm just Given that I never did any other work, I mean, I worked retail in college and stuff, but uh, never did any other work. Uh, I'm really lucky that it worked out because I have no other marketable skills, you know, like, like <laughs> and it's, no nesting from like, the time that I worked before graduate school. <laughs> I, I was just 
we have we have these open houses on our campus you know every few months for prospective students and so i i like some of the times i'm the person who's kind of staffing the philosophy theology table and and so often you know the questions i get are sort of like what what are the marketable skills you get as a religion major and, <laughs> and so i always have to pitch it in terms of like you'll get really good at reading writing and arguing like th- those are yeah. like those are your transferable skills but like yeah. that's, that's yeah. almost never the, the answer the thing we say for. is everything yeah all of it's marketable <laughs> right? it, it's true in a sense but like all, all they're thinking is like i don't want to read this stuff and it's like well you yeah. should. It's, it's yeah. good for you. It's good for the soul, uh, if nothing else. It is good for the soul. And, uh, sorry, yeah, and for, I mean, really developing, like, the possibility of creative thinking, which at least our students here, I think, aren't used to feeling like they can think outside of the categories that they already know. And, like, trying to, like, bust that stuff open, I think, is good for oneself as a person. But also, I mean, that is actually a good thing to carry forward in yeah. the rest of one's life and the future careers. Do you, I mean, in the, the students that you get, do you get students who remind you of you in, in the sense of coming in with a, a, a strong, if not theological interest, at least a strong sort of theological position? And then, you know, a lot of wrestling or struggling or, or fighting with a more critical and, and higher, maybe higher level or, or, or maybe deeper. I'm not sure the best way to put it, but a more academic engagement with that question. Yeah, so... Generally, I personally don't. And I think that has something to do with the classes that I teach. So I was hired here to teach like feminist theology. And so my classes are cross-listed with women's and gender studies, including that this is just the the feminist theology class just meets the basic requirements of the core. Okay. So I get students who don't want to take Catholicism. Mm. (laughs) Um, And so I think I get the students who are very suspicious. I get the women's and gender studies students. I get the students who I have to spend more time saying, here's why the tradition is valuable, Mm. or here's how feminist theologians are actually working within their tradition, right? They're not doing something totally different. And, you know, I've gotten the complaints of, like, more gender, less theology. And I'm like, I don't think you know, like, what fields you're working in right now. You know, like, what part (laughs) of the core are we fulfilling? The religion part of the core, right? So... I would say in some ways I would call it unfortunate that I don't work with students who kind of remind me of myself, Mm. not in a narcissistic way, but in the sense of like, I think that was really, I know what helped me as a student, or I think I could have think about the very pastoral responses I was given as a student and then Mm -hmm. think about those going forward as well. And not that I don't, I don't strive to have a kind of more pastoral response to, to my students who come from women's and gender studies. I do. Um, but it is actually a more foreign experience to me. But I know that students who wrestle with those kinds of questions are more like do show up in yeah. like the Catholicism classes and are more concerned about being exposed to feminist thought in some way or liberationist thought. Are gonna I, I, I've heard of those stu- those students, but they don't mm-hmm. tend to show up in my classes. Interesting. Yeah. When you have successes in making the tradition at least a, a viable conversation partner for students who are deeply suspicious of the tradition. What do you like, where, where does that success come from? Or, or what do you think, what do you think makes it work in some sense? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. So I don't know that this, the first thing that came to mind is I, I think I let, I wouldn't not, not let, but like I try to honor when students, like I've had students who just initially say, I hate this. right and I think honoring why they might hate it you Mm -hmm. know because in the feminist theology classes there are those students who hate it because of you know 
their understanding of how the how the Christian tradition treats women has treated LGBT persons, etc. Mm-hmm. And so kind of like honoring that there's like an important critique that they're making, I think yeah. is, is, is part of that. And the other thing is I always ask like a kind of very freebie question on my final as their extra credit question on the final, which is just what's the most important takeaway from this semester? Mm-hmm. And I would say the majority of those that I get, or maybe it's the ones that I focus on, but the majority of answers are always actually just really foundational kinds of doctrinal insights, where students say something like, it was really interesting to learn that revelation is God's self-communication to us for the sake of being in relationship, because I never thought that God would want to be in relationship with me. Hmm. Or I didn't realize that Christianity taught that like the body is good, and that the material world is good, and that there are consequences for that affirmation. So in some ways, I think it is actually just opening up the possibility of talking about what is really beautiful in this tradition. Mm -hmm. And students, I have found, not all of them by any means, but I have found that students, maybe students who are kind of like the nuns, aren't, it's not that they're not questioning or they're not searching. Mm -hmm. It's that their exposure to religion or to the way that these questions have been answered seems unsatisfactory or shallow. So giving them like the space to really kind of explore that tradition, I think, while, while bringing critique to the table really honestly, and that that's always welcome, I think is one of the reasons it can succeed. Yeah. I don't think I, did I answer that okay? No, I, mean, I think that, but does I that think, answer what you're hoping to get at? I think so. I, I'm not always sure what I'm asking on some level. <laughs> <laughs> I have this problem. I have this problem in class too, uh, where I'm trying to think, I, like I'm trying to think through something and like, I, yeah. I, I have to think out loud because it's how my mind works. I, I think, you? yeah. Well, I, I, I always think, like, what are you asking? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I often, yeah, oftentimes, like, what I'll have in my classes is like, I'll ask a question and there'll be silence for a little while, and someone will ask, "Can you rephrase the question?" And and yeah. while while they're asking, it's like, yes, like I need to rephrase this question because I'm not sure what I'm yeah. asking. So it's often, yeah, that's exact. That is my exact experience. <laughs> yeah, I know that I know oh, they're buying I, time, but on some level, so am I. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, I, I mean, I think part of what's on my mind and, and part of what you're helping me think through is, you know, I, I mean, a lot of times for my students, I, I definitely have students who, you know, they're intentionally and deliberately came to a Catholic university and they want, they want to engage with the Catholic tradition and they have a vision of what that means. And so it's sometimes very difficult for them to be presented you know, alternative takes on that tradition. And so I definitely get those students who are, who are like you're saying, are like, are typically the ones who probably aren't, who often, but not always aren't like opting for maybe a feminist theology class. But I, yeah. I also, I, I also get students kind of like the ones you're describing where, you know, they're not part of the Catholic tradition. They may not, may not be part of any religious tradition. And in some ways, success with them is getting them to, take the tradition seriously as, as a thing or as, as a community or as a way of thinking or a conversation partner or something. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's a mixed bag. Cause honestly, also I, I get, I get a ton of students who are just apathetic. Like they, they don't care. They're, you know, yeah. <laughs> they're in there cause it's in the, the requirement. They have yeah. to take it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I always, I always have this joke at the beginning of the semester when I, do introductions and I have the students go around to their names and I say, you know, tell me your name, tell me your major and tell me, you know, and I always give them some other weird question to answer. And I tell them when you say your major, if you haven't picked one yet, just say religion. 
because we don't have that many religion majors. And so I, I joke that it kind of like need more of you. builds me up. But it's like, if you say religion, then I'm pretty sure that means you're undecided. And and some of them will go with it. And I don't know, it delights me, I guess. But I think that's lovely. And then maybe you can trick them into it. Yeah. Like, oh, you've already decided now. Yeah, yeah. I got the paperwork for Let's you. Let's see so. what this would look like. <laughs> yeah. So, but I like. Yeah, try I mean, I think for the students. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say for the students who I think are suspicious or have a, I would say have a particular idea of what it means. When I, although I don't get a, many of them, I do get some who are like, this is completely foreign to me or like, this is not the way I've talked about this ever before. And so I just try to say like, yeah, it's really disorienting. And it's going to be like, if it's important to you, it's going to be something you're going to discern for a while, but that should be a place for you to find strength and not a thing that you think is threatening. Mm-hmm. Because my goal here is not to pull the rug out from under you and just leave you with like, it's all a lie, you know, but yeah. think about like what, if tradition is more complicated than you initially thought that it was, maybe that means it might be more beautiful, right? Like how mm. is it that it takes people, you know, centuries, it takes Christian centuries to figure out how to define Jesus's divinity. And we could say, well, okay, so then it's not true. Or we could say, yeah, but they were wrestling with it for centuries and searching for centuries and trying to find language to name that reality that they experienced, right? Mm-hmm. And that that is true and that is beautiful. And so I, with the students who tend to be disoriented, I do tend to, to, to be a little bit more self-disclosive when they meet with me or something. Okay. You know, say like, yeah, like I experienced this too. And, you know, my goal is not for you to think a certain way, but, you know, you should, you know, I hope that you take our text seriously and that you go through process of discernment and, you know, continue to search. Yeah. Sorry, but you were going to say something. No, no, that makes sense. I think, yeah, I, I mean, I think the the way I've had success usually is, especially with people who are coming from within the tradition, is is some version of the that a foundational claim in the Catholic tradition is this complementarity of faith and reason. And if if it's a good question, then it's worth pursuing. And if you get to a true answer, then that answer should be, you know, should should be consistent with the the faith and with reason because mm-hmm. if we're trying like if if one of the traditional descriptors of god is is the is the true and the logos then whatever leads you to truth should be leading you towards god mm-hmm. and so i i sometimes have had questions from students especially sometimes more evangelical students who are when we do stuff with scriptures they get you know this is challenging my faith this is very difficult it's like i I understand that and I don't I'm not trying to like ruin your faith but I'm trying to encourage you know a good critical appreciation of your faith should always lead you closer yeah. ideally should lead you closer so yeah I don't know yeah I think it's working I'm not always sure yeah. so yeah that's that's I do have a lot of evangelical or non-denominational students as well and it's always questions about the bible and I'm always like I don't know like I know minimal <laughs> things <laughs> I don't even read the Bible. <laughs> you know, like. Yeah, we're in kind of a Bible portion of my intro class right now. And so it's it's hit and miss. But I don't know. Yeah. We're doing Galatians really on dis- Friday, I mean, it is so. profoundly disorienting, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's scary. You know, it's scary, I think, to, to encounter these things for the first time. And if, if, like, it's scary to even think about, like, what the historical development of the Bible is. If it's not this very straightforward thing that you thought it was, well, then, mm-hmm. like, what does it mean? How do we trust it? And, like, if you're thinking about those things for the first time, that's really disorienting and kind of scary. Yeah. So I try to let students know that it's okay, you know, and maybe that's not, like, good. Maybe that's not, like, deep enough, but that it's okay and that, like, it's normal and that they're in good place and that, like, 
I'm not trying to destroy something for them. Yeah, yeah. I think that's helpful. And I, I it reminds me, we so we just had a midterm due and I was, you know, working with a lot of students on their midterms. It was like a paper that they had to write. And I was trying to explain to some of them who were really struggling. I was like, look, all, all I want you to do for the midterm, like my hope is that you'll get to like this point. You'll get to like point A. And my, my hope is by the end of the semester, we're at, we're at B or even C, but you don't need to be there mm-hmm. now. You just need to get to point mm-hmm. A on the midterm. And, and that's, yeah. that seemed to settle some of them down uh, a little bit. It's like, we're at, like, this is a process. This is going to take us a while. We're going to get there. But you got yeah. to, to some extent, you have to trust me. And to some extent, also, you have to challenge and question me. Like, it's, it's, it's kind of a tough spot to be in, in a way, but know that I know what I'm doing, but also know that you have to ask, like the better questions you ask, the more you're going to get out of this. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. So one thing that this leads to, and I I wanted to ask you about this because I I thought the, the interview that you did in America was really good, but the, you know, this recent question that, I mean, in a way it's a recent question in a way it's kind of a recurring, you know, decades long question, but, or centuries long question, but you know, what it means to be working within the tradition while also incorporating, you know, sources and methods and questions that come from outside the tradition or are not immediately part of the tradition. And I'm sort of, and I'm curious, you know, I mean, I think you made a very strong case in that article and we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes about the importance for the Catholic tradition of being able to engage non mm-hmm. not non immediately traditional sources but i i wanted to ask a, a bit further on this because you know i mean something that in students in the past when i've taught feminist theologies or liberation theologies or things like that is you know their gut reaction is this is you know not what the tradition says or this is not what athanasius says if they're you know really deep into it or <laughs> or uh you know like did, didn't the pope condemn this or or, or whatever else and you know, sometimes, you know, that retort that, you know, Aquinas was was condemned and his books were burned in his lifetime and, and all that sort of stuff, you know, sometimes that works, but sometimes it's, yeah, but like, we've already worked that stuff out. Like now, you know, now these new... Now it's closed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's sort of a, a closing of the canon in a certain sense. I mean, even in that language of mm-hmm. canon, there's this sense of it's being wrapped up. Mm-hmm. And I'm sort of curious for you. I mean, like you said that, you know, Gonzaga hired you to teach feminist theology. And I, I know that's a focus of your work and you focus a lot on suffering and, and sin and all of that. And so I guess I, I guess I, I, I want to hear more from you or, or, or to give you more space to say, you know, what is the significance of the tradition, but also what is the significance for the tradition of engaging what is not already part of the tradition? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the the shortest really, like, again, flip answer is, like, well, I work in ethics, right? So, like, if we're going to talk about particular actual actions or problems, those those change over time, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, with the age of exploration, that brings kinds of new questions about how to treat indigenous peoples. And not that that, again, went totally well, but Mm -hmm. we actually just do encounter new questions that have to be dealt with and have to be dealt with if, if there's going to be, like, any actual relevance or meaning, right? But I wouldn't want to leave, I wouldn't want to leave it just with ethics of, like, well, we have to evaluate, like, new questions about how to behave in the world. Sure. Because I, I think it's true that systematics also, or other areas of theology also, should be engaging external ways of knowing things, like, outside of the tradition, technically. In some ways, I really struggle to think about, like, well, why does this matter? 
in that it's become to me so intuitive and obvious. It's like I have a really hard time making a case, which I don't think is a strong intellectual position. (laughs) (laughs) But I was even thinking about it like for the America interview and I was like, well, like what, like what is there in the tradition that hasn't also been informed by something outside of itself? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, even the Bible, right? Like I can't think of like one pure thing. Right. And so, yeah, like Aquinas is a really easy figure to turn to. But I'm even thinking about like when I was learning like patristics, like you always learn about the context of these writers, mm-hmm. right? And like why, what they're responding to. And sometimes that means like new questions arise. And sometimes it means how do you effectively communicate the gospel in the language or like philosophical understanding of the time period that you're in, right? And so sometimes I even think of it as kind of like a translation issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it, like it, it, what it what would it be if like all Christians had to learn, you know, like Neoplatonism in order to understand <laughs> what we mean by like Christian like preaching? Like that would be kind of hard. I don't know, bizarre. <laughs> I mean, I know that we do learn those things when we start to do theology, but it seems like part of the goal is to be able to communicate effectively according to the context that we're in. And so I don't think by any means feminist theology ends in with what I'm about to say, but it's how I teach, which is that I actually don't teach in a way that's like, and here's all the stuff feminist theologians are critiquing. Mm. <laughs> I tend to think it and teach it in a much more like defensive manner, where we start with what is revelation, and mm-hmm. then we think about what is tradition, and how does it relate to scripture, and then like, what do we even mean by doctrine, and what are the different like levels of authoritative teaching? And that in itself like blows students' minds, you know, and I always have a student, like every semester a student will say, wait, so you're telling me that according to this this way of understanding like the hierarchy of truths, teaching on LGBT persons is not as important as, like, the divinity of Jesus. And I'm like, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, you can love your brother, you know? like. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, at least that's my position, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Informed by people I respect. But I, I think that's really meaningful for them. And so then we kind of tend to go through, like, various kind of topics. So we, like, kind of start with Christology and, like, who is Jesus and his historical context and how does the tradition come to name him as divine? And then we talk about God, God talk and then we do theological anthropology. And I tend to kind of almost look at it, frame it as the ways in which feminists have interpreted these realities, communicated these realities, and uncovered resources within the tradition. Mm. I teach them a hermeneutic of suspicion, you know, like what that is and how feminists use it. But I put much more emphasis on retrieval and interpretation because I just don't think, you know, if it's their first class, you know, they're not, we're not in the place yet to think about here are all the ways that we critique and then stay within, you know, whatever. So... I don't think I'm, I think I'm like mentioning things that occurred to me, but I think you asked a more substantive question. No, I think, I mean, um, I think you're definitely like on what I'm thinking about. And, yeah. and I, I, I mean, I, I do like, I really like that point of starting with revelation and, and starting with Dei Verbum. And, you know, I, I've been, I've been trying to teach parts of that text in my classes for years now. And, you know, some of the struggle, at least for me of teaching it is like, I, I'm, you know, I'm always interested in the way in which it's pushing back on past approaches to Revelation. And mm-hmm. my, my students are not invested in, in that fight at all. Because um, <laughs> they're, yeah, they're not yeah, interested in they're, like yeah. a more propositional model. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or yeah, like they're, it's, it's very, very rare I have a student who has any familiarity with like, you know, the, the detailed process of Dave Verbum being developed at Vatican II, that kind of thing. So, of course. Yeah. Like, so, like that, so like, I I sometimes miss the target in a certain sense in terms of what I want to talk about. But the thing that has been successful for me and that has helped me a lot 
and this is one of the things I'm, I'm still trying to think through for other work that I'm doing is, you know, this, this insight in Dave Erbum that, that you mentioned your student was so struck by about, you know, God revealing God's self and, and coming into the world and, and revealing God's self in order to have, you know, fellowship and relationship with us. There, there's the, the apex, the culmination of that's in the incarnation. And mm-hmm. what, we, what we have in the incarnation is, is God becoming human in, in space and in time and flesh in, in a particular place. And the, we, as much as we talk about the tradition as, you know, one of the two key witnesses to, to that revelation, and we talk about that in part because in the tradition we're trying to pass on and understand what this revelation means, it also at heart the, the tradition is itself incarnational and and we're we're trying to yeah. we're trying to like live this reality in a new space and in a new time in a new context and and hold on to the the fundamental truths of whatever that is but there's always i mean there's always obviously like the the translation issues and you know we're 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 speaking in english and not in greek or or mm-hmm. aramaic or whatever it might be mm-hmm. but yeah like the, the sort of new realities i mean I think about, you know, the examples that I try to use to talk about different theological concepts with students and beyond the fact that all of my pop culture references are out of date, like some of the, <laughs> there are, there are assumptions that I make that just aren't applicable for them anymore mm-hmm. and, and trying to figure out how to locate the tradition within that itself is, is hard enough for me now. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, I, in a way, like I, I think about one of the ways I think about this question of what does it mean to bring, you know, other things into the tradition is I, I think of it sort of incarnationally and, and tied yeah, to that sort of, I think of, it's beautiful. That, like that language that's, I, I know um, when, uh, when I was in college and I was doing, you know, the, the European history class I had to do and they talked about Aquinas and they talked about baptizing Aristotle and, and mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a way to think about it too, but, but like, we're really like, we're trying to make this tradition real now. Mm-hmm. So, and give it and give, and, uh, in a sense, like, I mean, we are, the, we are the flesh of the tradition. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is not always maybe for the best, but, uh, it's what we have. So, yeah. So this is the, yeah. this is the thing I'm sort of stuck with. Yeah. So. So another thing that's occurring to me is I took, um like fundamental theology, fundamentals of systematics or whatever they called it at Notre Dame with Mary Catherine Hilkert at mm-hmm. Notre Dame, my first semester there. And I have this very firm memory of her questioning the way that people would say, like, you know, there's people who are conservative or progressive or whatever, you know, within theology. And she said something like, because aren't we all trying to conserve the tradition? And like, that's, I think, that's mm-hmm. why I kind of mentioned in the America piece that, you know, it's not this rejection of tradition. It's like really like a deep wrestling with like, well, what is the tradition yeah. properly understood? And what is the thing that we're hoping to hand on? And like, I don't, I don't know. I, I really struggle with like, you know, if, if there's an affirmation of reason, doesn't that apply to mm-hmm. the way that reason manifests in other fields? And you know, like if Thomas Aquinas is relying on the psychology and biology of his time, don't we like owe it to ourselves to use the psychology and biology of our time Yeah. to think about these things? And that there is like a complementary relationship between the, like reason and revelation, right? And so mm-hmm. that affirmation alone seems to me that we have to be able to engage 
kind of other areas of study. And that also maybe that's like a part of sacramentality too, right? Mm -hmm. Like God's not only present to us in the kind of explicitly religious, but also in the rest of creation, of which other other forms of searching for goodness and truth are part of. Yeah. 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 I was reading, uh, I've been reading a lot of Madeline Lingle the last year, a lot of her mm-hmm. nonfiction. And there was a passage I read last night, actually, that said the line, I don't remember the exact line, but it was something like that. There's nothing so secular that the sacred can't break through it mm. or, or, or can't be revealed through it. Something like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. That makes sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, I I'm very sensitive to I one some of the classes I teach are for men who are becoming permanent deacons, and mm-hmm. and so they have you know obviously they they have this very particular role that they're studying and training for, and you know they even with whatever you know sort of ideologies or or commitments or principles or whatever they're bringing into the class, they're all tend to be fairly attuned to their future work in often mixed and ambiguous parishes. And so they, they ask mm-hmm. a lot of good questions, but I, like I, I've also noticed they often kind of struggle with this kind of conservative liberal question or what's the relationship of the tradition question. And one of the fears they often express, whether on their own half or on behalf of people they intend to minister to is this question of when is the tradition kind of, incorporating and and transforming the culture and when is the tradition kind of capitulating to or or selling out to the culture Mm -hmm. and i i I think sometimes you know that's the angle taken to critique things that are not explicitly from the tradition but Mm -hmm. it's not i don't i don't see that that's how that has to be so Mm -hmm. i also kind of think it's like well we'll know We'll know later. I mean, maybe I won't know in my lifetime if, like, the the, the, the searching that I'm doing is it becomes part of, you know, the, hand, the future handing on. But, like, we hope that we're in some kind of, like, messy part of hoping to understand and strive in our own time, and we'll see what happens. I mean, yeah. like, I, I kind of, not in a, I hope not in an overly kind of, like, shallow way, thinking about, like, oh, the church will continue. But, like, you know, the tradition, if it's true, will go on. Mm -hmm. And either it will incorporate elements that do, are come to be seen as authentically representing it, or those ways won't become, won't be seen that way. And it will continue on without them. And so, you know, thinking of it as, like, we're in the process of searching in a way that feels really messy and complicated and divisive in our own time well i think probably that always felt like that you know to people in their in given times and we don't know how it will go yeah. in the future but some faith that like we don't have to be afraid of the work of the spirit like kind of keeping it going <laughs> right that's part of the trust right is that like the, the spirit will preserve not not in a shallow way i mean i'm not a good systematician uh, but the spirit will like preserve what's essential right so like if if my stuff is bad <laughs> and wrong well, it'll get forgotten. Yeah, and not, not I don't, and it's not that I personally will be known if it's not if it's good. But like you know, the the moment that we're in, the insights, mm-hmm. the collective insights that we're in, will continue if there's something good there. Yeah, yeah, so I think that, I think that's we don't have to be afraid of it in the moment. I think. Yeah, I think that's helpful, and and it's also very hopeful. And I I think you know one of the things I take solace in is <laughs> how I guess how irrelevant I expect to be in the arc of history. <laughs> 
And so, I mean, I, I have I have my role to play as part of the church, and I, I I'm doing my best with it, I think. But it doesn't ride on me entirely. Yeah. And that's a yeah. That's a good place to be. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's comforting, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't want to screw it up for somebody else. And I, I know that that's always a possibility. And there's mm-hmm. some degree to which that's a, a risk that we took in becoming teachers. But That's like, right. Yeah. But I, so I, I'm not trying to mess anybody up. But I, I'm also, yeah, I'm not, I'm not deeply concerned about that. Because I, I doubt it would, I doubt, I doubt me on my own could do that. But. I guess yeah. I could be wrong. I mean, probably not, right? I mean, unless you were doing something like actively violent. Which yeah. Which you are. Yeah. Oh, God. Right? No. <laughs> like, how badly are you going to... <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe at some point, someone who's continuing to search goes like, eh, that was wrong. Yeah. And, you know, they go on. Yeah. No, I think that's helpful. I wanted to ask you, and I, I think I, I think this is probably related, but as I was like getting ready to talk with you, what I ran into is that you're doing work on what you call cultures of sin. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask what what that means, and, and I guess in a sense, like what the, what that work looks like, and in part because when I, I read that, my first thought was, you know, the the I guess I I think maybe the similar term structures of sin. I don't know if those mean different things or how you might distinguish mm-hmm. those, but yeah, so far it only exists in my dissertation in a conference paper that I gave, but I'm hoping that it will show up elsewhere at some point. <laughs> I think of it as. I mean, I rely some uh, a good deal, actually, on the work of Brian Massingale, who talks about mm-hmm. culture and racism. Okay. I would hope that the language, or what I'm imagining it doing, the language of cultures of sin, is actually being another way of describing social sin, okay. or the realities that we try to name by social sin, but that structural sin doesn't encompass very well. Hmm. So that I think, when we think of structural sin, we think of sins that are institutionalized in some way, whether that be policies or Mm. like actual institutions like a criminal justice system or something like that or maybe like capitalism right like we can think about like actual institutions that we would participate in really easily that are maybe complicated to avoid participating in but we can think of the the structures that were actually in the institutions or the policies that we're actually engaging in okay I think when I look at the research that I do on sexual violence what you're actually looking at is something that's a bit more subtle Mm -hmm. and like I would say, of course, there are institutions and policies at play when we think about issues of sexual violence, right? Like, how does the criminal justice system actually deal with this reality? What kinds of policies does the university have? What kind of policies, like sexual harassment policies, exist at a place of work? But when you really dive into some of the social scientific research on what one scholar calls the cultural scaffolding of rape, you're looking at worldviews that seem like common sense about what it means to be a man or a woman or what mm-hmm. normal heterosexuality is. Like it's handed on almost more by osmosis. And there's not a one particular structure or a collection of structures that we're participating in. It's more like what are the cultural norms hmm. regarding sex and gender that we often engage in and participate in in much more implicit ways, right? So if I were going to, the case that I usually make is that like my whole way of being in the world, right? My my way of being feminine is participating in some kind of cultural understanding of gender. And that cultural understanding of gender, given the society that we live in, is one that perpetuates violence or can manifest really violently in sexual violence. Hmm. So what I want in some ways to happen is to think about if I want to name that reality as sinful, right? Like 
feel like we've all gotten like pretty good at saying like, okay, like here's a social reality and that's sinful, right? Like that's mm-hmm. what the language of social sin has helped us do. Then the reality itself has to help us, like has to speak back to the way that we conceptualize sin. And so we have to be able to talk about these meanings and values. That's what Massengale says, like the meanings and values of a society that actually undergird society and can and can give rise to institutions and give rise to society in general. But there's something more fundamental, and that's the culture. And so I want to think about that kind of cultural dimension that can also be sinful, but that challenges us to think about our way of being in the world in, I think, more subtle ways. So we can't really focus in some ways on acts. We have to think about our way of being in the world. And I think potentially the way forward here is virtue, actually. I always feel like maybe I'm a virtue, th- virtue <laughs> ethicist, but then, but then I'm like, am I supposed to pick particular virtues? I don't know which virtues I want. You know, like, I don't, yeah. I get, I, I like the framework, but I get confused when it comes down to like actually working with a particular <laughs> virtue or vice. And here I'm making that really known to everybody that I'm like, what's a virtue? So, so I, I, that's what I'm trying to think about. Okay. Is something that, that, that would would not replace structures of sin, but could be another way of naming a kind of different dimension of these kinds of social realities of sinfulness that we yeah. have to that that we can see. I mean, or that that we can analyze through other kinds of you know other kinds of other fields help us analyze. Yeah, like the psychology and sociology, et cetera. And that I mean that would be especially helpful for you know because I, I mean and I've. I've had a couple master's classes where, I, you know, they've, they've chosen out of a group of options, but they've chosen to read Massingale's Racial Justice mm-hmm. in the Catholic Church. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the, one kind of common response or retort is, is some version of slavery ended, you know, X number of years ago, and Jim Crow ended X number of years ago. And now, you know, the, the laws have changed and all sort of stuff. And so these, these structures in any kind of legal or political way have are gone you know that that's a response sometimes mm-hmm. that you get and even setting aside the degree to which that is true and not true it doesn't what, what you're saying offers a way for accounting for especially stuff that persists even after structures change mm-hmm. because it doesn't you know because like one, one of these great questions that i love from moral theology is, is how does maybe this is one of the ways that virtue is coming into this for you is like, how, how does a culture train you in certain types of habits? And even if the sort of legal or political structure for that changes, the larger sort of inertia of the culture doesn't turn on a dime. So yeah. Yeah. That's very helpful. But yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to, to work on that. And I think Massengill's book and his work on culture is like, the thing that the the thing that I find most analogous to what I'm trying to get at. So I'm trying to I'm trying to like work with his work here yeah. a little bit. So but I, I mean I think when you're looking at something like sexism or racism, right? Like we can point to structures and institutions, but mm-hmm. there's also something else. Yeah. Uh that that we have to kind of try to name and think about a little bit. Yeah, and it I mean and it makes it a lot more demanding. And I, I you know there's a the the thing that's immediately on my mind with what you're talking about is the 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 abuse crisis in the church, mm-hmm. and you know we can there 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 have been some structural changes and there have been policies in place and things like that, and yet it doesn't you know it has not changed or, or has not overwhelmingly changed the culture that has made that mm-hmm. made possible abuse, and one of the 
in a way, one of the gifts of the tradition, but also one of the struggles of the tradition is the degree to which it's slow moving and yeah. it's glacial <laughs> pace. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it helps the church resist, you know, kind of, you know, going this way and that way, but it does make it difficult to respond to particularly cultural problems within our own yeah. tradition. Yeah. So. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is a helpful distinction for trying to think through some of those problems between, like, culture and structure, system. So. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for that. I know I know there are many theologians who've spent time thinking about what we even mean by social sin or structural sin. Mm-hmm. But I think we're still, we're in a, we're, we're still kind of figuring out what we mean, I think. And yeah. so I think we're just in a phase of hopefully some vitality around thinking about, you know, what we mean and what we want to be able to use that term to meet, to, yeah. to communicate. And then think about, like, how we're responsible for it, which is ultimately, like, kind of what I care about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of, like, avoiding blame or <laughs> not wanting to be responsible. Well, just, which I see in my own life. Like, yeah. <laughs> But it's so funny that even like a couple minutes ago, you said, oh, that's so hopeful. And I don't ever think of myself as hopeful. I just think huh. of myself as like profoundly pessimistic, right? And people say like, well, where's the hope in this? And I'm like, there's no hope. We're all guilty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know. And um, people in systematics are always saying, well, what about grace? Well, what about it? Like, I don't know. You know, I can talk to you about sin. I, I remember when I was an undergrad uh, theology major, I had one professor who who talked a lot about sin and all this sort of stuff. And she asked us one day in class, like, do you guys ever think about, like, holiness? And we were all, like, to a person, like, not really. <laughs> and then one of the other professors in the department, in conversation with him, he's like, I think about grace all the time. Like, that, like, that was his, you know, his his angle of approach. And it was, I don't know, it was very mm-hmm. striking. And, I mean, even to this day, I can see it in their personalities in a way. Mm-hmm. In terms of like, you know, what they're asking and why they're asking that and all that. Yeah. But, but it, it, I mean, if I may, like honestly, where where I do see hope in it is there there is something really genuinely valuable and and encouraging about finding better ways to name our reality. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I, and I think that this has been true for me for me at least theologically, but also spiritually. Like when I can finally put some kind of better term, better name, better description to it. Like it, it doesn't give me control over it. I, I wouldn't say that, but it gives me, a, it gives me an understanding. And so, so I, I think there's hope. I, yeah, I could, I could be wrong, but I, no, I, I think so. That. And I, I mean, <laughs> I think this is, I mean, this is going to be like a really weak use of, I mean, this is, I think weakly in, informed by Luther and I'm not like a Luther scholar by any means, but I think I try to always tell my students that it's really important to separate our worthiness and our value from our moral goodness, mm-hmm. right? Like, we're not loved by God because of our goodness. Mm-hmm. We're loved by God because we're loved by God. And that also means that we're loved by the people in our lives because we're loved by them. We don't really actually even earn the love from our family members, our friends, and our spouses because we earn it, mm-hmm. right? It's gift. It's gratuity. And so I really try to separate those questions out because I think in one way, people resist sin language because it gets bound up with these questions of worth. Like, it's like, yeah. no, I know myself to have value, therefore I can't be guilty. And it's like, no, we're like, we're both of those things, right? We're loved and graced by God and guilty. Yeah. And in some ways I find that more beautiful because it's like, wow, you know, like I'm 
terrible. <laughs> uh, and God loves me anyways. <laughs> right? Like I'm, yeah. I'm called out of my terribleness to be different, of course, uh, not just get, you know, apathetic about it, but that there's something really profound about God reaching out to us in our sinfulness as we sit with that. And so, yeah, I, I try to, when I talk about it, I try to be responsible in a way that doesn't reinscribe kind of like the dangerous functions of sin language. Yeah. Also. Yeah, that's very helpful to, yeah, I appreciate that. I had, I think, maybe one last somewhat serious question before my, my closing questions. I'm, I'm not sure the best way to ask this, but I, I, I guess I want to ask, like, do you, do you think of yourself as, as a public theologian or someone with a public voice? And how, and if so, if not, then that's the end of that question. But if, 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 if yeah, I mean, if, so that's, you know, a way out if you, if you need it. But if yes, like, what does that role mean for you? And, and, and how do you kind of enact it or live it? Yeah, I mean, I guess I do, right? I mean, I've like written a few public things. And yeah, I mean, and you're fairly active on Twitter. And yeah, um, well, yeah. Twitter is nice because I can just like say things that I think about, right? Like if I'm <laughs> kind of extroverted and I think out loud, it's like, here's a platform to yeah. say things. <laughs> which I appreciate, which is also, you know, not good self-control. And, um, you know, maybe that's not the most prudent thing to do, but I do it anyway. <laughs> well, I will say, so like several years ago now, I wrote a piece for America that ended up being like a little cover story. And I was so excited about it. Mm-hmm. And it was about pornography like kind of like largely in response to a statement that the bishops the u.s bishops put out Mm -hmm. and i got an email after it came out somebody i don't i don't remember all of the details yet anymore but somebody who was working at an all boys i think jesuit high school or men's jesuit high school i should say and they said that they were going to use the piece that i wrote as a jumping off point for a discussion like a retreat day with their seniors Wow! before going to high college, basically. And I think that is like the most amazing thing that I could ever be told about my work, right? And I'm sure, you know, like <laughs> the feminist theologian talking about pornography being bad, I'm sure like that didn't always go over well mm-hmm. <laughs> with that population. But if, if I could get a few people to think, you know, think about, discern the things that they're doing, right? Mm-hmm. I think that that's a win. And I think... I really value being an academic and having the opportunity to wrestle with these things in a very academic, precise way. But if those can't have, but if that can't have meaning for actual people or can't be communicated in a broader way, then like, why am I doing it? Like, I don't want it to be purely academic, right? I want it to be something that has to do with the life of the church. Yeah. And in some sense, I think that means taking what I know or what I think about or the my research and and offering it outward as well and mm-hmm. that that's part of the role of the theologian good that's very helpful i this is a question i am sort of, sort of consistently struggling with for myself in terms of how how much do i want to put myself out there i mean i'm very active on social media i do a podcast and all that but on there's a degree to which i always feel very guarded and i think that there's something i think i mean i don't think that's a bad decision necessarily but i sometimes feel like I don't know. I should be putting myself out there more. Like I have a responsibility to, in some sense. So, but you do, don't you? I mean, you do. Yeah, I mean, I tweet a lot, but like, I also like a lot of my tweets are about chickens. I mean, it's not <laughs> <laughs> theologians or people too. But like, I, um, I, 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 I think about this a lot in terms of what what people call Catholic Twitter or weird Catholic Twitter, and how mm-hmm. I, I often find myself sort of avoiding things that are controversies. Because I don't want to get dragged I mean, in. I think I, 
yeah. but I also I mean, like honest, I feel like I could add something. So I don't know. Yeah, I think I think I'm on the periphery of Catholic Twitter. Like I don't. I mean, to be honest, it kind of scares me. Yeah, like, there are some scary parts to it. And it's. I mean, it just feels like very. It can get so heated, you know. And I think it. Some of it also, it's just not. It is not my Catholic aesthetic either. Mm-hmm. In in ways that I used to live when I was a child in the Arlington diocese or whatever. And that was not a good time for me. Like it just, I Mm. think of that as like a a time that came with some baggage. And Mm. so artistic forms that are associated with that, Hmm. which I think show up more on kind of Catholic Twitter, I have an aversion to, and that's not a rational thing, but I, but I do have an aversion (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I I think there was like, I went to a Catholic school and I think there was some kind of like sloppy, some sloppy theology or catechesis going on that was not good for young people. And my brother said, well, of course, we knew that was stupid. You know, like, we knew that that wasn't true. And I said, well, I didn't. You know, I spent a lot of time thinking that I was going to hell. So I'm glad you came out okay, but I didn't. Like, you know, so I don't, I don't think there was necessarily anything wrong with those other ways of being Catholic. It's just, I think because of some of that experience, it's just not for me. Sure. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. I like to close out with what I consider to be less serious questions. And so I, I have two for you. My first is, what is your favorite or your least favorite liturgical song? Yeah, so I think, unpopular opinion, I like everything in the Gather book. Okay. <laughs> I like, um, I think if I were going to pick, well, I don't even know if this particular song is in the Gather book, but the Gather book gets at, you know, my basic style preference. Mm-hmm. I really like David Haas's Holy Is Your Name. Okay. Which is a, like, Magnificat. I think that would be my current favorite. I also like We Are Called... You know, things that just feel like, to me, they feel like classics. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure to other people, they don't feel like classics. <laughs> and sometimes, uh, can I be cranky for, I'm going to be cranky for a moment. And sometimes I feel like some of the songs that I like, people are just like, it's just such bad theology. And I'm like, well, what, what? It's the Bible. I mean, it's quoting the Bible. Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, like, maybe the Bible isn't always good theology either. And I know that, you know, the words change and sometimes the refrain is a little cheesy, but, you know, sure. like, sometimes it gets us into touch with like biblical, biblical stuff and biblical prayer. And I think that's really lovely. And then <laughs> this isn't my one favorite, but I also really like Teze for more mm. like meditative prayer. In college, I regularly did, like, they called it, like, I mean, it was kind of like a praise and worship plus Eucharistic adoration mm-hmm. at Fordham. That I was in the, the folk choir that sang at the Mass. Okay. So that also speaks a little bit to my taste, I think. Sure. And we, that, the group, that, the people in the choir, like, were part of the kind of core group who regularly went to this Eucharistic adoration and, and praise and worship. And it kind of was like some basic praise and worship, but then there were all these, like, these meditative moments that used Teze. And then I got to go to Teze when I was in college. Also. Oh, wow. So I really like that for, for meditative. I'm, like, I'm somebody who needs, like, I think, a little bit more help centering. And so that kind of repetition and song kind of form of prayer is really beautiful yeah. and helpful for me. That's wonderful. The uh, parish that I went to when I lived in Chicago, I think w- once a month would, for the young adult mass that I went to on Sunday night, they would do all the music was Teze music. And, it was, yeah, it was wonderful. I was really Wonderful, formed. Yeah. I was really formed by that parish in a lot of ways. So yeah, I like downloaded all my favorite songs and like when it comes to be the Triduum, I just like play it like the whole, <laughs> you know, like descend into the Triduum on Holy Thursday and listen to only Teze until the the vigil. You know, do I mean do do you also when Christmas is coming? Do you get really into Christmas music? Yeah, I do. Okay, I do, and I think that those are the times that I think I get more traditional about music. Like you mm. know. 
like you got to have like a little bit of a brass section for Christmas and Easter, mm-hmm. right? Like what's joy to the world without a brass section? I do, however, get like very cranky. Uh, if you have like Handel's Messiah at Christmas, which mm. everybody does, I'm like, yeah. it's the resurrection. Yeah. <laughs> like wrong, wrong day. So I, I think also, in those moments, I like, I like something a little like, like more classic. I, I also, say. but I, I love the idea of how, I mean, every, you know, every year at, around Thanksgiving, you know, all, there are all these like Christmas music only stations that pop out. I, I like oh, yeah. the idea of there being a radio station or like a, 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 a Pandora station that's like all Lent music or all Easter music yeah. around Dritoum. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That'd be great. That'd be amazing. That'd be great. So. Yeah. Because it would allow you to kind of like be in that space. But with Christmas music, this is probably also not a popular, this will not be a popular opinion with like other Catholics or theologians is like, I'm totally all for like secular Christmas, mm-hmm. not consumerist Christmas, but like hot cocoa and being with family Christmas, right? Mm-hmm. And that there's something about those, those like all, like all 24-7 Christmas stations. But I get really annoyed if religious Christmas music shows up before Advent is over. Yeah. So like, you know, when Thanksgiving is over and I move into the Christmas stuff, I want only secular Christmas before the actual, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, feast. And then I want like my 12 days of of liturgical Christmas. Yeah, my my unsuccessful battle I've been waging the last two years, especially, it is I, to to keep Christ in Christmas is to point out when people say Merry Christmas before actual Christmas that they're being liturgically incorrect. Um, yeah, you're like, I, you sir are ruining it. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I don't like I don't do that to like the checkout person at Target or anything, but. <laughs> Because right. I'm, I'm not, I'm not that big of a jerk. But like people who are really <laughs> amped up about this war on Christmas, it's like, well, you know, it's Advent, <laughs> so yeah. it's not, it's not Christmas what? yet. And so on that level, yeah. like it actually might be more accurate to say Happy Holidays <laughs> than Merry Christmas right now. Um, yeah, and that wins yeah. me no friends, uh, no friends. So <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm on board. I'm on board. I also was always like, I thought Happy Holidays was like not anti-Christmas, but saying like you're gonna, I hope you have a nice. Christmas and New Year's, you yeah. know, like a oh, whole interesting. season. Yeah. Like, I, I, I've always taken it that way. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I never thought about it that way, but yeah. It's the uh, holiday season because I, like, start <laughs> eating on Thanksgiving and keep going. Yeah. Well, and also for those of us who, who have, like, basically been in school our entire lives, like, <laughs> like, that's what that season in part means. It's like, I get time off for two weeks or more. Yeah, that's so. right. That's right. Yeah. So... My second question for you is of whom or what would you be the patron saint? So I don't, I don't think this is exactly how patron saints work, but I'm going to pick the thing that I'm bad at and hope that like <laughs> that works. Fair. Which is, which would be, I think I would be the patron saint of the, the rash or the, uh, the people who are rash or imprudent and kind of just like throw yourself into life and hope that it works out okay. <laughs> I think I, I think I would be that person that saint right like <laughs> hopefully the end of the story is that it does work out okay and like yada mm-hmm. yada that's why there's a patron saint for it yeah that's awesome i, I immediately <laughs> went to like what's the thing i struggle with <laughs> yeah that's health that's healthy though like the, to be able to identify that and be like this this is this is where my my fight is this is where my struggle is so. yeah yeah which is also i mean going back to the first question like how i got into theology i don't know i just decided to do it <laughs> 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 That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, Megan, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. It's been wonderful.
The Daily Theology Podcast was produced this week by me, Stephen Oakey. The music for the podcast was created by Matt Hines of the band Eastern Sea. If you didn't give up streaming music for Lent, maybe check them out on Spotify. If you like the podcast so much that you would like to support us with a few dollars, go over to patreon.com slash dtpodcast. These pledges help us cover the cost of hosting the show. Of course, if you want to know more about faith-seeking understanding in everyday life, head on over to our website, dailytheology.org, our Facebook page, Daily Theology, or our Twitter feed, at Daily Theo.